Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Weisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Okay. If you are going to be skipping stones, what kind of rock are you going to be looking for? I've been told flat and round, but I'm going to assume that must be wrong if they're asking. (laughs) (laughs) Well, according to The Guardian, potato-shaped stones are better for skimming. (laughs) What? I know. It turns everything we know upside down, but hold on to your hats here. Scientists claim that the heavier rather than flatter rocks can produce what's called a super elastic response when skimming. So, okay, Dr. Ryan Palmer, an applied mathematician at the University of Bristol, and Frank Smith, uh, another professor of applied mathematics at the University College London, together they crafted this mathematical model to investigate how the shape and mass of an object affect how it skims on the surface of water. And beyond the crucial implications for stone throwing, the model will help scientists who are working on more commercial problems like the buildup of ice on aircraft and the forces at play when, for example, planes land on water, which brings to mind quite the image since we're yeah, talking about yeah. <laughs> So these guys armed with the model identified a mathematical relationship between the mass of the stone and the curvature of its underside. However, bulkier stones, even if you throw them super well, are not the sort to skip across the water a dozen or so times because they interact with the water in a different way. So if you've got a heavier rock, you can get a super elastic response where you get a single mega bounce because it presses into the water more deeply and for longer. And as a result, the pressure from the water is sustained over the bottom of the stone for longer and the surface of the water deforms more. And that can overcome the mass and drive the stone back out. The model did not look at the impact of spinning the stones, but previous research has shown that spin is an important part of successful stone skimming. The main effect is to stabilize the stone through gyroscopic forces (laughs) as it glides through the air. You know, piece of cake. And if the stone is thrown well in the first place, the spin can prevent it from pivoting mid-flight and striking the water at a bad angle. I mean, like you said, it's good for other applications. Like if a plane is going to land on the water, you want to know this information. Otherwise, (laughs) it kind of feels like they took a fishing weekend and were like, we're going to write this off as a business expense, you know? (laughs) You know, they had a little bit of grant money that needed to get used up before the end of the year. Otherwise, it wasn't going to roll over. (laughs) I do feel like this opens up a new space for robot stone skipping competitions Mm. where they compete with high calibration sort of techniques. I'm surprised nobody's come up with amusement park ride oh no oh no no because no. here's the thing i like roller coasters i like amusement park rides anything that's uncontrolled like that not happening no yeah, no no i don't think lawyers like that either that's yeah. true <laughs> all right next link next, next link, link. This article comes to us from atlasobscura.com, and it's titled, When the CIA Spied on American Citizens Using Pigeons. 
Oh, really? <laughs> See, okay, now yeah. hold on. Because this is one of those things that's supposed to be like a conspiracy theory. Are you telling me it's real? Because. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no. Right. <laughs> the subtitle is The Seemingly Bird Brained Cold War Experiment is Still Partially Classified. What? Wait, yeah. is it still in effect? Uh, no, no, just classified as in they won't tell us exactly everything that they were doing then because of various, you know, nefarious pigeon related schemes, <laughs> I assume. But so it may sound unusual, but the idea of using pigeons for espionage wasn't without merit. The United States military had itself been using pigeons since the late 1800s for communication, hmm. but Elizabeth McAllister, author of War Pigeons, Winged Couriers <laughs> in the U.S. Military, 1878 to 1957, says, I could not document any instance of them being used for reconnaissance. Enter the CIA. For several years, the Office of Research and Development, ORD, has carried out endeavors to train different species of birds, states a declassified September 1976 CIA working paper. By September 76, the ORD had already invested $100,000 not just training <laughs> pigeons, but designing harnesses and cameras for the operation. Various methods of releasing the pigeons were trialed, including a modified VW Beetle to transport the birds. Taking inspiration from stage magicians, the CIA cut a <laughs> hole in the floor of the Beetle, allowing for pigeons to be surreptitiously released. Under, the car. Under a car? That sounds yeah. dangerous. Like, half of them are going to get run over. Seriously, uh -huh. the success rate of release had to be super low. How dare they? <laughs> So, by October 1976, the birds were flying over Andrews Air Force Base near Washington, D.C., and in February 77, the CIA proposed a further feasibility test at the Navy Yard in southeast D.C. The Navy Yard was a bustling center of activity. Ceremonial docks mingled with active docks for ships under repair. Air conditioners could easily be seen on top of buildings, and it was possible to count the window panes on the old naval gun factory. It's possible to make out the shape of the headlights on their vehicles, and their clothing with the styles of the 70s are easily visible as well. <laughs> while it can be debated that a certain level of privacy is forfeit while on a military installation, this is explicitly not the case outside their gates. Mm. A tantalizingly small number of photos by the pigeons have been declassified, some of which show homes outside the Navy Yard. In 1975, the CIA had been castigated on the front page of the New York Times for experimenting on Americans. <laughs> the details released by congressional investigations, as reported by the National Security Archive, concluded the CIA had violated its charter for 25 years through illegal wiretapping, domestic surveillance, and human experimentation. Aww. And they really learned their lesson, I think we can say. <laughs> yeah, and it had not even been two years, and the CIA had turned Americans into unwitting test subjects again. <laughs> The declassified files end in 1978. A lengthy April 1st, 1978 report stated that the program met the high-resolution requirement and was feasible, provided more testing was conducted. Others in the CIA did not agree. A memo <laughs> <laughs> labeled the program a mess that hadn't proven anything and it advised against adoption. But the extent of the program remains unknown. The most recent public comments by the CIA come from a 2021 video advising parts of the mission are actually still classified. I mean, I guess they must have used pigeons because they were so predominant, because it feels like crows or something else would be smarter. Well, pigeons have been used for messenger purposes throughout all of the world wars, right? Yeah. And I guess if like half of them get run over, there's always more. Like you don't want to <laughs> invest in a crow. <laughs> but, like, well, I feel know. like maybe the crow is too smart and just may feel like, you know what? I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. 
So AI is all the new talking points, but Microsoft has a new tool that just needs to hear three seconds of your voice to mimic you. Now, that's a little bit of a stretch, as a lot of these are. So what Microsoft has created with their new tool, Neural Codec Language Model, Val-E, Valley, is built on Meta's Encodec audio compression technology. So mm-hmm. streaming audio takes too much to stream. And especially right now, most of what's being streamed is a lot of audio. Think, you know, how much people listen to Spotify and mm-hmm. all of those things. Sure. So, and this podcast, we want them listening, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> the point of that is inside of that software that Meta was creating to create smaller data, they also figured out a way to create text-to-speech synthesis. So Meta has something called their Library Light data set. You can actually go and put your voice into the Meta's library. That's on you if you want to give your voice to Facebook, I mean Meta. Um, (laughs) mm -hmm. But it also means that there's 60,000 hours of recorded stuff and 7,000 people that they can use. Mm. So that's what they've been using to train all Mm. of the samples right now. Okay, so it's kind of a very tongue in cheek that they named this model Valley, like Mm. Uncanny Valley. Oh, Mm -hmm. I figured it was a play on Dolly, like with the image. It's both. Oh, okay. It can be everything, Mm -hmm. guys. (laughs) (laughs) The thing about this is this isn't actually new. It's just kind of with the three seconds they can do Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that gets me is like, I can see how if you had hours and hours of audio footage of somebody, Mm -hmm. you could absolutely pick out all those vowels and pick out the intonations and figure out how to synthesize it. Three seconds seems that's ridiculous. (laughs) Well, and I listened to their samples. They've got a ton of sample sets and Mm -hmm. it's still raw, but it's year two. I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even in audio engineering, one of the things getting replaced is the final mix of the mastering process. And it's something that AI five years ago was pretty crap at, honestly. Mm -hmm. I could run it through and say, ah, humans. We're better. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, not, not so much. Not anymore. Yeah. Three seconds. Do you think maybe the phrase that they need you to say is the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog? <laughs> I was thinking it was my voice is my passport. Verify me. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Well, this next article is from New Atlas and it's called Lev begins experiments aiming to double the lifespan of middle-aged mice. Wow. Oh, dear. First off, I don't know about y'all. I did not know what Lev is, and I was a little annoyed that the headline acted like I was supposed to, especially because they freely admit in the article that it's a brand new organization that very few people could have heard of yet. (laughs) At any rate, Lev stands for the Longevity Escape Velocity Foundation. And it's based on the idea that while we may never find one silver bullet to prevent aging, it is perhaps looking possible that we will identify a combination of treatments, which, when put together, will allow us to achieve, quote, escape velocity, where aging will still happen, but it'll never be able to catch up to us, right? Hmm. So the organization was founded by the controversial anti-aging proponent Aubrey de Grey, who straight up looks like a cult leader in these photos. (laughs) He's got a beard down to his stomach. He's wearing this wrinkled shirt that's way too big for him. And unfortunately, this does seem very much like a case of really good research being funded and spearheaded by a not-so-good person. DeGray had previously founded the Methuselah Foundation and the Sens Foundation, 
but he was fired from the latter in 2021 after another employee alleged that he told her it was her responsibility to sleep with wealthy donors in order to bring in more money. Of course. Yeah. I mean, now, doesn't she know how this works? <laughs> now, the Sens Foundation was quick to point out that they were not accusing DeGray of any predatory behaviors himself and strongly implied that the real reason he was being let go wasn't because of the comments themselves, but because he wasn't participating in certain substance abuse programs that were a requirement of his contract. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if the visionary doesn't get his microdosed LSD, right. how do you think we're going to move the science in the right direction, okay? Exactly. That was his <laughs> argument. And just to really drive home how much you would hate this guy, Angie, he sometimes <laughs> refers to himself in the third person as oh, when yes. he told a reporter, quote, people don't donate to Aubrey de Grey because they want the work they're supporting to be timid. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He also notes that the studies they're doing right now are focused on halting or reversing middle-aged mice rather than trying to prevent young mice from ever getting old because, quote, this will appeal more directly to people who care, vote, and make donations. People who can afford it. Yeah, exactly. Like, honestly, if he could do studies on rich mice, I'm sure he would. But <laughs> I applaud the transparency. My God, he is holding nothing back here. It is refreshing, right? Yeah, well, is it? I mean, yeah. <laughs> but to whatever degree we're able to set all that aside... The fact remains that he has some really talented scientists on his payroll, and the studies he's funding are pretty fascinating. So first up, there's rapamycin, which is an immunosuppressive drug that's designed to prevent organ rejection, but which has also been shown to suppress aging-related gut biomarkers in mice and to extend the lifespan of both fruit flies and worms as part of combination therapies. Wow. Yeah. The second trial that Lev is moving forward with is a newly developed conjugated form of Navidoclax, which is a drug that's known to target and remove so-called zombie cells in mouse brains. These are cells that have stopped dividing, but also refuse to die. And they've been a key target for longevity and dementia researchers. The hope is that this new conjugated formulation of Navidoclax will help target its effects more precisely. Hmm. Thirdly, we have MTERT or mouse telomerase reverse transcriptase. This is a gene therapy that targets the telomeres at the end of every chromosome, which wear away over time and are known to be directly correlated to aging. In a small trial published in PNAS last May, MTERT was found to extend the median lifespan of mice by an impressive 41.4%. So now Lev is looking to expand on those results and hopefully understand them a little better. And finally, there's hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, which is basically injecting stem cells directly into your bone marrow. This has been successfully used as a treatment for various cancers, early stages of MS, and Crohn's disease, as well as a remarkably effective cure for HIV. Uh, hmm. whoa, way to just throw that in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Jeez. There's no specific correlation between the treatment and longevity yet, but researchers do think it's a likely candidate given how it effectively reboots the immune system, which is closely tied to aging. So they got all these things going on at once. DeGray claims that following these multiple leads at the same time will be more efficient and ultimately get them to combination tests of the most effective treatments sooner. The article does note that DeGray is turning 60 this year, and he and his biggest donors are no doubt hearing the tick of their own mortality in the background. <laughs> But honestly, like we said, I don't think he really disputes that. You know, he's very open about wanting to oh, live yeah. forever and thinks it's kind of weird that some people don't. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, I think I would. I don't know. I feel like there was an episode of Sandman that was like this, where there was a, a guy who's basically like, I'll never get tired. I want to live forever. And death was basically like, yeah, you think that. OK, fine. <laughs> I'll make you live forever. And we'll check in every hundred years and see what you think about it. And there was like the first or second meeting. He was like, OK, I see what you get. Like everyone I love has died. But then he basically kind of came around again and was like, no, actually, there's exciting new things happening all the time. And I yeah. love that. And I'm all excited about it. Yeah. So uh-huh. I, I don't know. I'm not one of those people who feels like we should definitely die. I'm OK with immortality, but only for like me and people I like. Maybe not. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people feel that way. Well, and the way this was described is like you basically want to just outrun Mm-hmm. I just got this death becomes her kind of vibe where it's yes. like, you know, okay. your body is physically dead, but right. you can make it look alive, but it's still dead. So you got to take real good care of it. You're walking around with a giant hole in your stomach. You know, exactly. Yeah. You can, you can <laughs> fill it, but it's always going to be a filled hole. The makeup industry will thrive. <laughs> well, well, we have, you know, limited resources too. What are you talking so... about? I don't believe that. We don't live like that. Come on. Well, it just means capital punishment will become much bigger. (laughs) We got to get rid of anybody any way we can. (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, from New Atlas, an oral pill delivers insulin directly through chemical micromotors. Hmm. And we're, at least as Americans, man, we love popping a pill. If we can take a pill for it, gimme, gimme. I thought you were going to say we love diabetes. I was like, yeah, that too. (laughs) (laughs) You know, whether this is the case for you or someone that you love, because diabetes is extremely common, Mm -hmm. now a team of scientists have demonstrated an oral tablet that is self-propelled by chemical micromotors to deliver insulin. Now, we've only tried this in the colons of rats so far. But an oral pill would be way simpler, of course. The problem has been that insulin is super fragile as a molecule, right? So before it can even reach the intestine to be absorbed in the bloodstream, it's just kind of acidified out of existence. So Mm -hmm. recent work has explored ways to encapsulate the hormone in protective coatings so that it can survive the extreme environment of the stomach. But once it reaches the intestines, the insulin still diffuses passively through the membrane into the bloodstream, which is still not super efficient, right? Like you right. still got to go through all these different little spaces and it just kind of trickles in. So other studies have attempted to get around this problem with nanoparticles that only release insulin when glucose levels rise. We've also looked at capsules with microneedles that directly inject insulin into the stomach lining. Hmm. And we've also looked at robotic capsules that burrow into the intestinal <gasps> lining. What could go wrong? Mm-hmm. Okay. No, I was I was down with microneedles. Burrowing is not okay. <laughs> but for this new study, we're talking about scientists in China who have developed an oral pill that not only ferries the insulin safely to the colon where it needs to be, but once it's there, it takes an active role in digging into the intestinal wall, which again sounds super dramatic, but it's what we're looking for here. Mm. And that is all thanks to what the team is calling a chemical micromotor. Okay, so this is where it gets a little wonky here. We've got these three millimeter long pills, and they contain magnesium microparticles with a solution containing insulin and a layer of liposomes mixed with baking soda, of all things, and finally hmm. coated in an esterified starch solution. Mm-mm-mm. Now, each of these ingredients has a very special role to play. 
So the starch protects the tablets as they make their way through the stomach to the colon. Once the pill gets to the colon, the tablets break down until the microparticles are exposed, allowing the magnesium to react with water to produce a stream of hydrogen gas bubbles. And this is what propels the pill towards the lining of the colon where it can be absorbed more efficiently. So far in tests in rats, the team found that these oral insulin pills could significantly reduce the glucose levels for more than five hours. And the levels maintained were almost as low as those where insulin is delivered via injection. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we still have a lot of work left to be done, but the team says this study is not only a step towards insulin pills that are taken orally, but they could be used to make oral forms of other medications traditionally mm -hmm. delivered through injection, which is someone who has an injection medication. Give me the pill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this opens up technology for so many different kinds of medications and on recreational situations, I'm sure, too. Sure. Yeah, I'm just going to throw that out there. Okay, next link. Next, next link. link. This article comes to us from TheGuardian.com, and it's titled, Dolphins Shout to Compensate for Human-Made Background Noise. <laughs> oh, no! They can't hear us over the bar noise! <laughs> yeah. The findings revealed that a noisy environment makes it harder for dolphins to communicate and cooperate on tasks, adding to concern about the impact of human noise pollution on marine life. Pernil Sorensen, a graduate student at the University of Bristol and first author of the research published in the journal Current Biology, said, In a very noisy pub, we find ourselves increasing the volume of our voice. Dolphins respond in a similar way. They're trying to compensate, but there are some miscommunications. So they have their own little game of telephone where it's like, Hey, we're going fishing over here. And it's like, you're wishing over where? <laughs> <laughs> Dolphin just going, what? Again and again. <laughs> Yeah, honestly, I never imagined animals being like, what? What'd you say? But right, right. I mean, it seems like that would happen a lot. <laughs> so dolphins are social, intelligent animals relying on clicks and whistles to communicate and using echolocation to hunt and navigate. The latest study involved a pair of dolphins, Delta and Reese, and looked at how their ability to cooperate was affected by background noise. The dolphins were required to work together to press their own underwater button placed at either end of a lagoon within one second of each other, a task that some humans would struggle to coordinate. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were released from a starting point during each trial, and in some trials, one of the dolphins was held back for five to ten seconds. That meant that the dolphins had to rely solely on vocal communication to coordinate the button press. Mm. When increasing levels of noise were played from an underwater speaker, both dolphins compensated by changing the volume and length of their calls to coordinate the button press. From the lowest to highest levels of noise, the dolphin success rate dropped from about 85% to 62.5%. Mm. The dolphins also changed their body language, reorienting themselves to face each other more frequently at higher noise levels and swimming across the lagoon to be close to each other. Sorensen said, despite being highly motivated and the fact that they know this cooperative task so well, the noise still impaired their ability to successfully coordinate. The increase in background noise has been linked to strandings, decompression sickness, and behavioral changes. In September 2020, Australia experienced the largest whale stranding recorded in history, in which 450 pilot whales were found washed up on the west coast of Tasmania, most Aww. of which had to be euthanized due to their Aww. low chance of survival. 
Another recent study found that when narwhals are exposed to seismic air guns used for surveying in the oil and gas industry, they immediately begin diving to escape from the noise. Because mm. it's a seismic air gun. Come on. Yeah. yeah the, the trick is in the name. I mean, it makes yeah. it pretty clear. <laughs> Sorensen said there has been some positive attempts to address the issue, such as the use of bubble net structures around construction sites to muffle sounds. Maybe there are times of the year that it's better not to be in a certain area, so you could reduce traffic at certain times and increase it at others. Yeah, and, I mean, that's yeah. probably the closest we're going to get is compromising with them because we're not going to stop all shipping. We're not going to stop no. undersea drilling. That's unlikely. But maybe we can, I don't know, stop using the gun. <laughs> right, we may find a better way of doing that or find a better way to insulate the ship so the motors aren't as loud. Yeah, if we could go to electric, those are real quiet. Yeah. Then we'll yeah, just yeah. have a bunch of electrocuted fish on shore. <laughs> oh, come <laughs> on. <laughs> Jennifer. That being said, next link. Next, next link. link. All right. Uh, this comes from Knowledgeable Magazine. Can playing video games make you smarter? Yes. Yeah, oh, not so. according to my parents. Mm -mm. <laughs> so short answer, yes and no. Oh. Uh, depends on the game is what they say. So the bad news is that most off-the-shelf games, they're not improving the cognitive <laughs> skills. Yeah. And that includes puzzle games, adventure games, or even some of those brain training games. Yeah, uh, I'll buy that. Those, sure. aren't, those aren't the ones that help. Any guesses on the best one to improve your cognitive skills might be? Best genre uh, of video game? Factorio, I would assume. Mm. Those manufacturing games, mm. I don't know. First-person shooters. Oh, oh, no. Interesting. So what they're also on, right? We also have to be careful with the smarter. Right. What they're getting on is the ability to multitask. And that's also a bit of a misnomer in the psychology field. It's really task switching. Mm. So your attention is never fully on what we like to believe we can multitask. But the good news is here, right? They are working on nonviolent games that can help with this. So, oh, like first-person shooters that are not actually shooting. Right, right. First-person <laughs> gooers. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. That are nonviolent. <laughs> that still hold those same principles. So they have one called... All you can ET. Okay. So these these aliens are falling from the sky and they're deciding whether or not they want a drink or some candy of specific kind and they're constantly changing what they want. So you're constantly switching that, which it's keeping you focused. Mm -hmm. So a, a neuroscientist, Adam Ghazali, created a game called NeuroRacer, a car driving multitasking game, which is... Ooh. Uh, trains attention <laughs> control skill in other adults. And then a company also parlayed that same tech to develop Endeavor RX, which helps kids with ADD. And in 2020, it became the first ever video game approved for medical marketing by the mm. FDA. Oh, I bet somebody lobbied hard to get that badge of approval. <laughs> yeah, I think there has always been an issue of people who aren't game designers trying to make something for a scientific purpose. Correct. And you end up with these terrible, terrible products, like educational <laughs> software for kids, where it's like, oh, it's a fun mm -hmm. math flash game, and it gets old in five minutes because you don't have somebody who actually knows what they're doing from the game-making side of it. So if they can really get them together and make good games that achieve these things that they're trying to achieve, fantastic. I mean, I think mm -hmm. until that happens, we're all going to be still playing the games we want to play at the end of the day. 
Unless it's a prescription. <laughs> right. Unless it's a prescription and we're doing it for our children. All right. You're going to need two weekends of Call of Duty. Get That's your right. friends. <laughs> block your calendar. Take family medical leave from work because this is important. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Next link. Next, next link. link. All right. This next article is a personal profile from The Guardian on Svante Pabo, who just won the Nobel Prize for Medicine or Physiology. So apparently that particular Nobel Prize spans both categories, which is fitting because Pabo's work really spans both categories as well. He has a Ph.D. in molecular biology, and more notably, he is the founder of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology, where he pioneered the study of paleogenetics, or Neanderthal DNA, basically. Well, I feel good about myself now. You've accomplished so much in your time. Oh, so much, so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So looking back on his childhood, Pablo says his obsession started as something of a hobby. He wanted to be an archaeologist, and he would routinely sneak off into the forests of Sweden behind his house to see what he could dig up. His mother later took him on a trip to Egypt, which he described as life-changing, and he started off in college studying Egyptology. But he quickly figured out that he had a, quote, far too romantic understanding of what the work entailed. Hmm. So he soon switched to molecular biology. His obsession with mummies never really went away, however. And when he started learning about new methods of extracting and testing very old DNA, he thought it would make perfect sense to try these processes out on mummies. And at first, he actually ran his experiments in secret on the weekends because he was afraid that his thesis advisor would think it was a dumb idea. But then he got some really solid results, and his advisor encouraged him to pursue it further. The problem, of course, was that ancient DNA is massively contaminated, both with other ancient DNA and modern, you know, microbial DNA. So he soon found himself developing his own extraction techniques and applying them to older and older samples until he ultimately became the first person to successfully tease out clean DNA from a Neanderthal. Ooh. And while that is kind of the core basis of why they awarded him the Nobel Prize, he's actually done a ton of work since then comparing the Neanderthal genome to the modern human genome. One of the first big surprises he found is that as a whole, there are fewer differences between the average Neanderthal and the average modern human as there are between all the various living humans today. So two random human beings will have about three million genetic differences, while the average Neanderthal and human only have about 30,000. Oh! So these 30,000 differences are pretty important. They really kind of define what makes a human and what doesn't. You know, it's the same thing of like we share 98% of our genome with chimpanzees. Obviously, we're very different. So those are key differences that we have. But he's also discovered a ton of information about the Neanderthal genes that do appear in some modern humans. For example, they found that people with a particular Neanderthal chromosome variant were twice as likely to die of COVID if they got infected. Oh, no. Hmm. Based on mortality statistics and the prevalence of the variant, which is mostly found in South Asia, Pabo says we can estimate that this Neanderthal gene is specifically responsible for 1.1 million extra coronavirus deaths. Wow. But it's not all bad news, as Pabo also demonstrated that this same gene reduces susceptibility to HIV. Aww, and a different. I know, but it's, it's some good and some bad. Yeah, he went some, he lose some. A different Neanderthal gene reduces the risk of miscarriage. But then again, yet another Neanderthal variant makes people more likely to feel pain and to therefore age quicker. Mm. So they really have, you know, sort of a huge swath of things to test here. And it's almost like on some levels, you can kind of think of these are just normal human variations at this point because they are. 
It's really more that he's saying, ah, but we can trace this back to the point when Neanderthals and humans were interbreeding. This did not exist in the human genome until that point. Mm-hmm. Wow. And weirdly enough, Pabo does have a little bit of a personal connection to this idea of knowing where your genes really come from and how they influence you because his father, Sune Bergstrom, was a biochemist who won the Nobel Prize himself back in 1982. I thought you were going to say was a Neanderthal. Okay. <laughs> right. oh, that makes sense. Okay. Got it. But Pabo says his father doesn't really get to take any credit for his own path in life because Pabo was born out of an affair and kept a secret from Bergstrom's official family all the way until Bergstrom died in 2005. Ooh, take that. Yeah. yeah, there's clearly a little bitterness here. He says, quote, my father would show up on Saturdays, have coffee or lunch with me and my mom, and then disappear again. <laughs> he was already a graduate student when his father won the Nobel Prize, and it didn't even bother him, he says, that he couldn't tell any of his fellow graduate students, hey, that guy's my dad, because he didn't think there was a legitimate connection there. Pabo says that his mother was a chemist, which is how she met his dad, and that, quote, it was her great fascination with science that was transmitted to me. She was by far the greater influence. Wow. Which I just thought was really interesting that this hardcore geneticist would come down on the side of nurture over nature when it came to his own family. You know, mm -hmm. he's pointing out like, oh, this gene from 70,000 years ago, it makes you do this. But my genes for my father? No, totally useless. <laughs> <laughs> uh, to hold that duality, right? Exactly. <laughs> to be human. That's right, because that's what humanity is, right? The Neanderthals, they had no problem with cognitive dissonance. They were no. like, yeah, sure, it's fine. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include Why is Ice Slippery? How the Ukraine War Ruined Physics? And The Future of the Search for Life. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can be found on daminteresting.com. If you like our podcast and want to support us, you can do so at patreon.com slash daminterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.